0: Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep, A Century Hence by William M. Paxton, first published in 1880 in a book of 500 copies printed for private distribution. In the preface, he says that it's... For his friends as a memory of their uh, of their meaning to him. <laughs> um, I'd not heard of this poem before, and I'm not sure how anyone has heard of this poem before, uh, given that it's so obscure. How did you come across it, Eric?
1: I came across it in a book called SF, The Other Side of Realism, um, in which the editor... Um, had gathered together some older things uh, and he in fact had done the original scholarship that found this particular poem when I read it there I was impressed by it as an individual work Uh, it's it's good I think and and worth more attention than the dog trot verse might uh, suggest and Mm -hmm. also historically It is a marvelous, clean, succinct example of so many things uh, that it it sort of is emblematic of that late 19th century American faith in progress and technology and an American exceptionalism. It's it's, uh, something that we would look at today as, I think, uh, amusingly naive um and yet there's an earnestness and a hopefulness that i think is really attractive so uh the the editor found it and brought it out and uh and to me it made a big difference so i was glad to be able to suggest it to you
0: mhm uh i i love um these these you know late 19th century let's imagine what is 100 years like down the road um, sort of things because they do they tell us a lot more about them than they do about us. Um, but in in reading about it, I'm always thinking about what actually te- the technologies are available and what those technologies mean to people. And I think this poem is a nice example of of doing that sort of his premise. Uh, maybe I should just explain what the plot of this and structure of this poem is. Um, it's 21 stanzas um, uh, with, um, I don't know what's the what the structure is, A, B, A, B, or something like that, right? Um, but each of the stanzas has a title, and it tells the story of, uh, presumably, uh, Paxton himself, a, the unnamed narrator, um, says, if we could look down the long vista of ages, and then he mentions a vision of seven sleepers. And I'm not familiar with this, but I'm hoping Eric can enlighten us. And then um, he has his own trance, his own vision in which he is transported a century hence into the future and sees his old uh, home transformed and meets his descendants and has a wonderful dinner And then goes to bed only to wake up to find that he is no longer there. Is that approximately uh, the story? I think that's true. I think it's true. That's what happens in the story. I
1: think that uh, it is a story that that, like so many, um, rewards deeper reading. The the outer plot is as you say some fellow says well you know if you could just think down through the vista of ages we could see some amazing things and then he tells us all of these amazing things and he he wakes up dissatisfied um then we can take a look within this plot of a kind of tour of the future i see mm-hmm. this i see that i see the other thing it's sort of a rather old-fashioned way of giving us a vision of the future in fact it's a fairly common way in the last third of the 19th century to give us a uh, utopian uh, view of the future. And I mean that as a, as a good place utopia, not a dystopia or an ambiguous utopia, but an eutopia, E-U-T-O-P-I-A, it gives us that. But then if we read further, more deeply into the language that's used to describe um, this, what is seen on this tour. I think we get um an implicit idea of the role that humanity will have in the in the world and the the the, the structure of society and the role of America in relation to the rest of the world this is a uh, a very despite despite the uh the the, the regret as it were of waking up to be in our present world, that's only a minor regret because the speaker is so sure that the world will become as he would like it to be. Mm. And that in fact, I think is what, uh, what he's writing this poem for the, the book of poems, as you say, is called a century. It's a collection of his poems, but the title of the book as a whole is a century hence. And other poems. This is the key poem for uh, for this book. I think probably that Tom Clarison, the editor of SF, The Other Side of Realism, probably found it in his own researches because A Century Hence is a title that invites the interest of science fiction scholars. Sort mm-hmm. of time travel. Uh, but, but why Paxton, a lawyer did it, I think is made clear in his preface. He says in the year 1876, while busily engaged in the practice of law, I suddenly became hard of hearing. He's got a a bodily breakdown. I had already attained an age at which many of my profession are superseded by younger and more active men. So the fact of the passage of time is bad for the speaker. For this man, it became necessary for me to refuse all litigated cases and content myself with an office practice. The impairment of my usefulness was a bitter affliction, Mm -hmm. but my active and ardent nature would not brook idleness. So there's something about his imagination that's not going to be thwarted by the mere facts of nature. To while away my leisure hours and to ward off the misanthropy that often accompanies trouble or disappointment, I turned my attention to poesy. What he's saying is if you don't have something good to do, you're going to start hating people. Mm -hmm. And we need people to like people. And one of the ways to do that is to spend your time creating acts of the imagination. So I'm going to write poems. And then I've shared these with my friends, he says, in his preface and as you said um he dedicates the book to them because they gave him an audience they gave him a reason to use his imagination well when we read the poem itself it turns out that this wonderful utopian future is an american future Mm -hmm. and in the rest of the world where people are ignorant or oppressed where they're not willing to let their imaginations run free and support each other in it those lands have all crumbled those places lie in ruin. So this is, although the whole world is controlled in this utopian future, in fact, it's only America that shows the fruits of it. So at the deepest level, the story is one of American exceptionalism and triumph. Um, So outermost, it's a guy calling asleep. It's a tour of the future, but way, way down deep, it's we have our idea of what America should be, and by golly, we're going to get there.
0: Yeah, it's it's uh, the American dream, and it it has some frightening things for non-Americans in it. Um, <laughs> um, the manifest destiny that is so prominent in its vision of the future uh, means that it's conquered, the United States has conquered Canada and Mexico all the way down to uh, Panama, right, yep. in the a very um, expansionist mm-hmm. <laughs> policy, but it's a good thing. Everybody's happy, and that this is a technological utopia too, right? This is not um, we're gonna do it by superior um, scholarship or superior um, music, right? It's it's technological, and yet um, it's also got a lot of biblical and uh, other references. So it it how did you call that doggerel how did you describe it yeah. well it it's 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 like it's it's fun poetry but it's not like um it'll blow your mind in, in the skill of this you know romantic era you know champion poet it's fun but it's not brilliant and yet i think it is very uh much it's like time traveling and meeting this guy i think because it really gives you a sense, especially with that introductory frame where he seems to be, I mean, the words that I highlighted, you know, you, you've got that, that to avoid, to ward off misanthropy. He, he's trying to guard against, guard his heart from uncharitableness and to warm it with the genial glow of benevolence. And, and now he says at the end, my heart is overflowing with kindness and sympathy for all mankind right <laughs> i mean this is this is a, a guy who even though he has reason to to be upset you know he's he's getting older he's he can't hear things anymore as well as he can any he, uh, he'd like anyways um, when other others of his his kind are being you know pushed out of their jobs by young active people here he has a vision of A future he'll never see, um, but which he is fully confident will come to pass. You know, you asked before about the
1: seven sleepers. Mm -hmm. The seven sleepers is relevant here, I think, about that confidence of what will come to pass. Uh, That's a story that's told in a number of different ways, but. The most common is that there is, uh, it goes back to Ephesus, there is uh, oppression, uh, people not being allowed to follow their religion, and and seven young men go and hide in a cave, and the cave is sealed, somehow they're lost in the cave, and they stay there for years, I mean, it turns out that they are there for generations, and when they come out, it turns out that the, the, the The God, the religion in which they had faith, it has prevailed. But when they come out and tell how glad they are to see a world in which their faith has prevailed, the people there don't believe them. Mm. Because you were alive then? No. So the story of the seven sleepers, it's like, you know, each stanza, as you say, in Century Hence has a title. The first one is called Prophetic Visions, and the third line refers to Isaiah and his mysterious pages. Um, a key to this sublime, this, these visions sublime, right? There is something here, as you said, there's biblical imagery throughout all of this. And so in part, uh, Century hence is a statement of faith. In the ability of man, and I mean that with a capital M, but I'm also using the word the way this story does, um, man to, in fact, bring nature to to heal. That is H-E-E-L, that nature will do what man wants. And this tour shows us that all of those things that God created in the first six days in the Bible, now man is controlling. We're back to Eden. And the word Eden appears in the poem. Uh, maybe we were cast out before, but we're back now. Um, genius and science with industry's hand, this country and people shall bless. That word bless is interesting because it's it won't say it will enrich,
0: gratify,
1: mm-hmm. or make happy. Genius and science take the place of what God would have done, that these aspects of humanity are in fact capable of blessing. It seems to me that what we have here is uh, is man authorized to be God. The, the last couplet, the last two lines of the opening stanza um, say that this vision that he has, give honor to man for his genius and might, and glory to God for his grace. And so the question is, one would ask reading the poem for the second time. What act of grace do we see that God has provided? And it seems to me that we see at least two. One is God has given capital M man genius and might, which allows man to then go and tend the garden and have dominion over all that is therein. We've been able to return to Eden. Um, The second thing that God has given in his grace is America triumphant, that the rest of the world may be on, may be beyond Eden. Uh, in fact, the, the the stanza that shows us how, how bad things are um, is titled, let me see if I can find that, is titled um, Desolation in the East. Mm-hmm. So east of Eden, the world has fallen to shreds. But in fact, not in America. And the last line of that stanza is uh, he speaks of pride for his own happy land. So we've got two examples of grace. This is a utopian re re, resurrection of Eden. And in fact, if you look at these traditional utopias of which the last third of the 19th century was perhaps the, the most active period of production of such works, um, whether they are set in a distant pla- place that's yet to be discovered or somehow in the center of the earth or back in time or forward in a dream or you go through a time machine or whatever it is, in fact, utopia within an, an E, a utopia, the good place, no matter where it may appear explicitly to be set implicitly, it's always a return to Eden. It's always a. Mm-hmm getting back what we had once lost which is what this guy wants to do in the preface i lost my hearing i lost my vigor but i'm gonna get it back by becoming a poet
0: yeah i i i i also like it's this poem it makes me laugh because he's he seems to be really interested in technology and yet some of the technology some of the technologies yeah yeah we got it but then there's the ones that they're always just like, what? <laughs> you can't imagine that would actually happen. So he has, you know, rain machines. Uh, or, well, uh, rain uh, rain producing technology. Oh, we kind of have that, sort of, right? It's cloud seeding. But then it, they have a rod that's attached to the wall They can just make the sun shine brighter. Right. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's a, that doesn't sound right. Um, having all the animals sort of living... Um, Uh, in in stanza five, we get a vision of the garden. I I like all of stanza five. I'll just read that. I go to the garden. In wonder, I'm lost. The fruits of all countries are there. The fig and the date are not hurt by the frost. The orange is luscious and fair. Each month brings renewal of all kinds of fruits. The tropical flowers grow wild. The birds of the south and the African brutes find the climate congenial and mild. So it is almost a, a vision of, what eden would be with the wild animals you know so living in harmony the fruits always bearing constantly from the trees it's it's got that you know hothouse technological utopia uh with a lot of nature built in sort of fun stuff and then the very next stanza is the one that like i just this is the point in the poem where i said okay we definitely gotta do this story because It's called The Flying Female. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It goes like this. In deep meditation, I wandered alone and lifted my gaze to the sky. And lo in the heavens, a bright object shone approaching from regions on high. As an angel, it hovered, then dropped by my side. Who are you? I asked and retreated. She folded her pinions and sweetly replied, Your hostess, come in and be seated. (laughs) We got a, a flying angel woman, a Valkyrie like woman, coming down in the sky. It turns out she's got a husband. So it's not exactly uh, the normal Eden. And it also turns out that she is a descendant, um, as is her husband, of the narrator, um, although via different branches of the family. And that it is a century hence, a hundred years ago, uh, he produced a family that lives on the same same lands but in a mansion instead of a cottage and then we get the vision of the technologies the daguerreian art right a photography as we would call it and it yeah it sounds like hey this is modern photography it's colorful it's very crisp uh, a lot of resolution right um, yeah. it's it, it's that's a legit technology then we have the rain machine The sunshine uh, enhancer or whatever. And then, uh, 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 starting in the next one, a climature uh, in stanza 11, uh, we get a vision of what more is in that garden uh, besides what we saw before. We see nutmeg and cinnamon bowers, shrubberies with fruit and tropical flowers, plumage of birds from borneo and hummingbirds from brazil and songsters from europe the ganges and the nile it's full of animals and they're all living there in harmony with each other and then we get the vision of the airship which i think is wonderful too (laughs) atmospheric ship as as they call it it could be an airplane it doesn't really say exactly how it works right right um and that's cool. And then her husband tells of this visit he's gone on, where he visited the banks of the Nile, to cities now crumbling to dust of China, Japan, and Australia's isle, where all are in ruin and rust. Even Australia, which is sort of a upside-down, inside-out United States, <laughs> is in apocalypse. And the whole East, we learn, is desolated. It it doesn't say how it's desolated exactly or how it came to pass, but as soon as he reached the Isles uh, over California Strand, his spirit was filled with the thrilling emotion of pride of his own happy land.
1: Yeah, I think that, uh, in in fact, although we don't know the details, the desolation in the East comes where ignorance, vice, and oppression held sway. So it's Mm -hmm. it's not that science and technology couldn't give humans Eden. It's that humans don't know how to use Eden. And so while, you know, we've got the second coming as it were, we've got a return to Eden from America. The rest of the world is still East of Eden, that desolation in the East, because, you know, you've disobeyed God and, and there you are. Um, this, this poet who has created something to avoid misanthropy. And you know, so he can still love humans is the creator, at four generations remove, of both the man and the woman. Our poet is God in this Eden. And as soon as we get past this expression of pride for his own happy land, we get this view from the Rockies, where we're told that the land was a garden, a home for the free and the blessed. And as you've just told us all the best things of the world are gathered into it from Borneo and Brazil and what have you. But here only here in America where St. Louis is now the capital Mm -hmm. center and also coincidentally the place that, that Paxton lives, um, is the capital of this new Eden. The land was an Eden of love and delight with mountain and valley and stream. I find it fascinating that although the tour of the future shows us one technology after another, climate control and flying and telephones and photography. The, the sign that we are, in fact, in utopia is not technological. It's, in fact, the same utopia that we would have gotten in Genesis. It's a place where nature is comfortable and made for humanity. And the very next stanza is called the whole continent ours.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so we've conquered it all. we get all these inventions and I think that Paxton knows what he's doing. He's he's not a great poet, but he's an interesting visionary. And as I hope people who might be listening to us picked up from your reading of a, a stanza here or there, exactly how dog trot the, 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 the rhythm of this thing is, um, And stuff gets buried in it. Some of it I think Paxton doesn't know. Some of it I think he does. Uh, Of the 21 stanzas, the 19th is called Telephone. Mm. Um, And let me read it, if I may. An order for supper by telephone now had scarcely been made by my host. When in sprang a servant, I cannot tell how, with coffee, ham, biscuit, and toast. He'd come (laughs) from St. Louis, 300 miles out. With dishes delicious and rare. There were venison and turkey and salmon and trout with pineapple, orange and pear. <laughs> now, a couple of points about this. This may sound um not so particularly interesting to a 21st century uh north american who can after all get all of these things in a supermarket all the time but we're talking about 1880 here folks you know you don't get pineapples uh, you don't get pears you don't get these things just whenever you want and you certainly don't get them from 300 miles away lickety split
0: Mm so you
1: know This is really a technological Eden, and it's made possible by the telephone, right? The fact of communication makes possible everything else to put to work the other physical technologies. The communication technology is at the core. But what isn't stated is that there's still servants, Mm. right? The servant, where'd he come from? I cannot tell how. That's right. You cannot tell how. Because if you were to tell how, you would have to explain that there's still a servant class, that this land that is happy and blessed is one in which people still are, in some sense, separated from each other, despite the discussion that this new kind of motive energy that just means one person can produce as much as 50, Mm -hmm. there's therefore enough largesse for everyone to live wonderfully still there are servants still and that goes unexpressed there's another point i'd like to make though about what's going on he knows he can't tell and i think he's just alighting the problem all right so i i, I think that that he doesn't really know the deep implications of that i could be wrong he may really understand them but the part that i think he really maybe didn't but did know and this is i think maybe the one stroke of poetic genius that is in his control of the language not just the ideas it comes at the very end right? the penultimate stanza is artificial light mm-hmm. right um, again if i may i'll read it and and we'll see the the dog trot you know very uninteresting rhyme that has been going through this whole poem When supper was ended, I found it still light. I looked for a lamp and found none. I stepped to the door and looked forth on the night, and lo, every house had a sun. Above me, in splendor surpassing the moon, a disk in the heavens gave light, and neighboring orbs gave the brightness of noon and scattered the darkness of night. Now, the use of the word heavens there is clear. It's again giving us the The religious resonance in the background of man, the creator. But you notice that in this perfect rhyme, this, excuse me, perfect rhythm where everything fits exactly right, we have what some people might call a fascist utopia. In fact, that's the kind of critique that was measured, leveled against uh, Edward Bellamy in Looking Backward, America's most famous uh, utopian work, which came and was published in 1887, just seven years after this was published. Um, and in looking backward, we have a completely organized world and everybody has to be happy whether they like it or not. And that's not said, apparently not said in an ironic way. Well here, you know what? Everybody has light. It's never dark. (laughs) Maybe some people would like the dark. Maybe some people would like privacy. Maybe some people would like the natural variation of light and dark, but no, no. Not only does everybody have a sun, but the neighboring orbs give the brightness of noon. That is, the whole society is organized to make sure that it's always daylight. You have to conform. You must have it this way. The word perfect is used throughout this poem, this 19th century idea of perfection. Who today would say we understand the problem so well that we have perfected it? No, we might say we've advanced it. But we always leave open the idea that something could give us a new insight that would make change later. But in the 19th century, there was a mode of thought that for many said, we can eventually get this completely right. We can Mm -hmm. be done. We can be done. And that's what's going on here. A perfected society. However, I'm on my way to what I think is the, the poetic genius of this. The last stanza, conclusion. At the age of 21, sorry, stanza 21. (laughs) Um, By reflectors, the light of these beacons was cast on parlor and chamber and hall and candles and lamps were consigned to the past and light like the air was for all. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Now, worn by the scenes of the day, I need rest and find it in slumber Elysian and but rise in the morning, perplexed and distressed. Was all but a beautiful vision. <laughs> yeah. And what I love about that is that last word, vision, cannot be read properly without messing up the rhythm of the poem. We've had 20 stanzas and seven out of eight more lines with perfect, perfect rhythm the whole thing had been perfected. But when he wakes up in the morning, he is perplexed and distressed. Twas all but a beautiful vision. The poem is not quite perfected yet because he hasn't really gotten a century hence. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is very discomforting, but on- unlike something like La Belle Dame Sans Merci, where the fellow goes into fairyland and then when he comes out, he's just depressed for the rest of his life because, you know, he's, he knows he can never get there again. This speaker is not going to be depressed for the rest of his life because he has full faith that over time, America will be this happy land where technology and science brought together among people who do not oppress each other. Despite the fact of the servant, we will be able to have it. So the end of the poem reminds us by this use of rhythm, 'Twas all but a beautiful vision.' We're not in the Elysian fields. We haven't gone to the the godlike realm of those heroes who die and go uh, to live forever in a utopia with God. But we're getting close. We can hear it because you know we can we can reread that last line, 'Twas all but a beautiful vision.' And realize that we can go to work on that vision. I think that that slight imperfection of the rhythm in the last line, that's a stroke of
0: genius. (laughs) It's 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 a crazy, hilarious Dr. Seuss style poem uh, about a a man's vision of the future that's almost completely wrong. And yet uh, it's really worth reading. (laughs) But there is always more to
1: say.